Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, slamming the brakes on auto theft. Throw him in jail for 10 years. I don't care how long it is. I don't want him in our province. Get the heck out of our province if you want to do that way. Ottawa hands over tens of millions of dollars to Ontario, but how will that money be spent? Just what is the plan to take on an increasingly violent crime? We'll speak with Ontario Solicitor General Michael Kersner. Also, The Conservative war chest just got bigger as the party announces its best fundraising year ever. What does it say about how Canadians are feeling about their political leaders? And pushing back on Ottawa's two-year cap on foreign students, why one group is warning about the economic impact this policy will have. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. $121 million. That's the amount of money Ottawa is handing over to the province of Ontario. Money that will be used to take on the surge in auto thefts in the province, in particular around the greater Toronto area. Now, that money comes just a week before the Trudeau government will hold a national summit on combating auto theft, inviting politicians, police, border agents and auto industry executives to come together in Ottawa. This investment will support efforts to address, obviously, as the chief noted, gun and gang violence, but it will also support efforts from police officers across the province to deal with the criminal linkages, the organized crime linkages to an increasingly violent and alarming circumstance around auto theft. I have a message to all the criminals. We're coming after you, we're going to catch you, and you're going to jail. Simple as that, we're going to keep you in jail as long as we possibly can. I will not spare one resource to make sure we go after these thugs and make make sure that they're going to jail. Well, with more on today's announcement, we're now joined by the Solicitor General of Ontario, Michael Kersner. Minister, thank you for taking the time. It's great to be here. It's really great to be here, and I appreciate speaking with you today. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation because, you know, anecdotally, we know that auto theft has really become a big issue for Ontario. But, you know, from your vantage point, just how bad have things become? Well, you know, when I became minister in June of 2022, they said that a car was stolen somewhere in Ontario approximately every 30 minutes. And we know that there has been a dramatic rise in the amount of cars that have been stolen. And moreover, people now have had their car stolen as a result of a violent home invasion. And, you know, Michael, it's completely unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point, because, you know, I think a lot of people, when they hear auto theft, they still think of this as a property crime. But it's increasingly becoming a violent crime, particularly in Ontario. Why is that? What, what's caused this evolution? Well, I think it's the fact that uh, people can uh, steal a car and there's very few consequences for that. You know, in today's announcement, the premier made it very clear. You know, the, the, the right, the inherent right that we have to live safely in our communities is absolute and constant. And we have a right. And I said this in my remarks, Michael, 
We have a right to take our kids to school and to wake them up in the morning and make sure they're okay. We have a right to go to work. We have a right to come home at the end of the day and shop. And we have a right to pray. This inherent right of living safely in our communities is fundamental. And when we have these people, these uh, people who feel that they have a right to disrupt our right to feel safe in our own homes and communities, we're going to take action. And today, you know, we, we laid out exactly what are we going to do about it. Well, walk us through that, because, you know, in addition to the money that Ottawa is, is committing here to Ontario, we also know that the, the province itself is launching its own police task force, investing in a prevention program. And to your point of the violence, and th this is a result of things like uh, burglars breaking into the house to steal car keys, people being uh, carjacked at gunpoint. So what exactly is your government announcing today? Well, today the federal government announced... Uh, the, the fact, and, and actually we were together with Minister Mendicino earlier in the spring, but today when we were with Minister Varani and Minister LeBlanc, we, they announced the federal government's commitment to help us fight crime in, in across Canada. And the, this gun and gang, uh, the monies that are uh, being used to fight gun and gangs throughout the province of Ontario, we're going to do a lot with that money. We're going to make sure that 50-plus police services across Ontario, the OPP, First Nations police services, have the monies that are required to fight crime. And the federal government's grant today goes a long way. Goes a long way, $121 million from the federal level to the, to the Ontario level. Uh, again, you're also launching your own prevention program, also starting off this police task force. What do you want to accomplish with that police task force? Well, it's part of our uh, strategy that we announced uh, last year. You know, we've never had a premier in my generation that's more concerned about our public safety. You know, what we've done and what we've announced just in this past year and moved it into action, the Bail Compliance and Warrant Apprehension Grant, that's an investment of over $100 million uh, that'll be spread over three years. The Auto Theft Grant that will help specifically provide the personnel and the technology to, uh, to many police services to fight auto theft where it is. And the third thing that we did last year, Michael, that I think is very important, is announcing that we're expanding the Ontario Police College to put more boots on the ground. And I can tell you, and the Premier made mention of it today, by moving the classes that formerly would graduate about 1,400 cadets a year to over 2,000, those plus 600 cadets that will be police officers will be boots on the ground and their presence will be felt. Mm -hmm. Now, the Ontario Premier, during the news conference today, he also talked about essentially the court's role in tackling the issue of auto theft. And we did hear uh, Arif Varani, the federal justice minister, he said he was open to the idea of stiffer penalties for auto theft. So what would you like to come out of that? What do you want to hear from Ottawa in terms of the, the court's role in all this? <clears throat> well, you know, Michael, when it came to working collaboratively with the federal government and the other premiers and territorial leaders across Canada that uh, was, were receptive to the letter that was penned by Premier Ford and signed by his colleagues of other first ministers. It was calling on the government to address that we have to get these violent and repeat offenders off our streets. And what I can tell you is Bill C-48 is a step in the right direction. 
what the premier referred to today is asking Minister Varani to go further, that we have to have consequences for people that feel that they have a right to steal our cars. And I, I really want to give a shout out to uh, the Premier of Ontario, who recognizes the priority of public safety across our province. Now, next week, uh, Ottawa will be hosting a, a national summit uh, to combat auto theft that's going to happen on February the 8th. Uh, what do you hope to see out of that? <clears throat> well, what we want to see is a continuation of the discussions, Michael, that we had at the minister's uh, FPT meeting in Bromont, Quebec, a couple of months ago, where we move it forward, where we collaborate with other provinces and with the federal government. We'd like to see more stepped-up action at the Port of Montreal and other ports and other ports of entry across, uh, across Canada. We believe that a lot of these cars are just being exported uh, in uh, sea containers. That's unacceptable. But uh, what we're doing uh, and what many police services are doing in Ontario is they're having JFO, Joint Force Operations, to go to the ports and to find these cars. And today is an example, and I mentioned it, you know, we've recovered about uh, just slightly over 100 cars just in York Region recently. So the police, uh, the OPP, First Nations Police Services, are working very diligently. What we need to do is to have cooperation from the federal government to take measures such as at the Port of Montreal and to inspect the sea containers that are outbound to see where the vehicles are. And you know, Michael, and we know this is a fact, many of the vehicles are just going through the ports of Montreal. We got to stop that and we got to stop auto theft wreaking havoc in our uh, in our Ontario is completely unacceptable. Michael Kersner, Solicitor General of Ontario, really nice to meet you. Thank you for the time this evening. Nice to be with you. Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party have another reason to be feeling confident today. Not only buoyed by strong polling numbers, the party just announced a record-breaking year in fundraising. The party taking in $35.2 million in 2023, $11.9 million of that being raised in the fourth quarter from about 66,000 donors. As for the Liberal Party, it came in a distant second, raising $15.6 million last year, and the NDP about $6.8 million over the same period. Well, to talk about this, we're now joined by Eric Grenier, the polls analyst, as well as the man behind the writ. Uh, Eric, nice to see you. Good to be here. So $35 million in 2023. Put that into some perspective for us. Just how big is this for the Conservative Party? How big is this for any party, really? It is enormous. It is a record-setting year for fundraising in Canada by any party, going back to the beginning of this kind of fundraising system that's been in place now for 20 years. $35 million is a new record for the Conservatives. The previous one was $31 million in 2019, and that, of course, was an election year. So what we are seeing now is that the uh, Conservatives are able to raise more money than they do during an election, when normally uh, that is when parties hit their record. And that $11.9 million that they raised in this quarter, again, that is another record-breaking quarter for the party. Twice before, they had raised $10 million in a quarter, but again, those were during election years. So it just shows that the Conservatives have tons of money to spend, and also it does suggest that when an election actually does come around, 
they could even raise even more than the amount that they're raising now, which is already a record-setting pace for them. Yeah, and, and we know ahead of an election, and we heard it during the Conservative National Convention, we know that they're going to be doing more ad buys, and this money makes that easier. Uh, you know, as I said, the Liberals came in a distant second. They, they raised less than half of what the Conservatives did. Is there any silver lining in that for the party? Not much. Uh, they're behind by $20 million uh, behind the Conservatives, which again is more than we've ever seen before. And by a lot, the previous records are more about 12 or $15 million gap between the two parties. If there is a silver lining, it might be that it wasn't worse. The amount of money that the party has raised in 2023 is almost exactly the amount they raised in 2022. And 2022 was a better year for the Liberals. They were running even with the Conservatives in the polls. This year has been a lot tougher. So it does suggest that at the very least, the people who are giving money to the Liberal Party, they aren't leaving to go to the Conservatives. They are sticking with the Liberals. It's just those voters that haven't been sticking with the Liberals. So there isn't much here for them to be happy about. But, uh, you know, that's the silver lining, that it could have been a lot worse for the party. Yeah. And as for the NDP, let's go there, because a distant third. Now, the party does see itself, interestingly, uh, with an opportunity, they argue, to position itself right now as the real alternative to Pierre Paulia. But given the, the, the fundraising number that we're looking at there for the NDP, just how difficult it will, will that be for the NDP if they actually don't have a war chest to, to fight with? Yeah, I think that is going to be the challenge. These aren't bad uh, figures for the New Democrats in the context of how much money they usually raise. This is actually one of their better uh, non-election years. It's their best one since 2014. Uh, but the maybe the advantage the New Democrats have is that they are fighting over a lot less of the map than the Liberals are. The Liberals do have to match the Conservatives dollar for dollar wherever they can in nearly every part of the country. The New Democrats only have to do that in a few portions of the country, so it does allow them to direct the resources to where it matters most. But the New Democrats aren't raising as much money as the other two parties by a fair margin. But they also more or less have a nearly the same amount of expenses. The, the, the cost of running the party, keeping the lights on, is not that much lower for the NDP than it is for the other two. Uh, so it does make the fundraising that they do have, it doesn't go as far as the fundraising that you might see from the Conservatives and the Liberals, who do have more money to spend on something other than just salaries and, and office expenses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, the, the, the fundraising dollars are just one number. The other numbers that we're watching closely has to do with polling numbers right now. Let's, uh, when you look at uh, the different polling firms and what they've been putting out the, the last week or so, what does it say to you about where we are right now? If an election were held today, where would things stand? Yeah, the polls have been pretty stable over the last little while and generally seem to be going around the the 40% for the Conservatives, 25% for the Liberals, 20% for the NDP. If you look at how many seats the each party would probably win with these numbers on the current electoral map, you are looking at a huge majority for the Conservatives, 194 seats right now in terms of my own projection, 76 for the Liberals, 36 for the Bloc, and a 30 for the NDP. So that is a, a big advantage for the Conservatives, lots of cushion for them, because we see that their, their leads that they're building up in Ontario are pretty significant, double-digit leads, Big numbers for them in British Columbia in the polls in the last couple of months. Atlantic Canada, again, a place where the Conservatives are ahead, usually by double digits. Really only Quebec is the only place we're not really seeing a lot of growth for the Conservatives. Uh, but they don't really need it. They don't need the 10 to 15 seats that they could win in Quebec right now based on how popular they are and how much support they have in, in those battlegrounds in Ontario and in B.C. So, so almost this consensus amongst all the, the, the pollsters that uh, the Conservatives have this significant lead. Although you, you do write in today's edition of The Writ that uh, both Ipsos and Nanos have Liberals making uh, small gains. What do you make of that? 
I think that it might actually suggest that the Liberals could have hit their floor. Uh, we did see in the period around mid-November to early December that the Liberals were sometimes polling at 22, 23, 24 percent. We haven't seen numbers like that over the first few weeks of the year. We are seeing more of the 25, 26, 27 percent. And again, if you're looking for silver linings, that might be the silver lining for the Liberals, right, that they are only now maybe recovering from the very lows they had at the end of the year, but they are still so far back from the Conservatives that they can't even imagine that the polls could be wrong, that they could win, you know, because of vote efficiency, more seats than expected. They are just so far behind in so many parts of the country that being up a point or two in the polls from about a month ago probably doesn't make much of a difference at all. Okay. Uh, listen, uh, while we were away, because this is a primetime politics first week back as Parliament is back, uh, a by-election date was announced for Aaron O'Toole's riding, the riding of Durham in the Toronto area. And full disclosure, uh, I know this riding well because that's where I lived before moving to Ottawa a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm wondering what you're watching out for there. March 4 is the day of the by-election. What are you looking out for? Because historically, this is a very strong Conservative riding. Yeah, it is very safe for them. It's stuck with the Conservatives since 2004. So even when Justin Trudeau did so well in the GTA in 2015, this riding was still Conservative. Aaron O'Toole won this by about 16 and a half points last time. So there's really not much of a chance that the Conservatives are going to lose this seat. It would be a pretty big upset if they did. But I'll be looking to see if the Conservatives are going to be able to match the kind of movement we've seen in the polls. In Ontario, they're up about 10 points from where they were last time. So will they be able to get to 55% in that riding? The same kind of numbers that the Conservatives used to have in Durham in 2008, 2011, when they formed government. This will also be the first by-election that we have uh, since the polls have shifted. The previous by-election was in Calgary in the middle of the summer. This was before the Conservatives had built their huge lead in the polls. So this will be the first test that we have of real voters putting real votes in ballots, in ballot boxes, and we'll see if the numbers, the direction that they go, if they match the polls and suggest that what we're seeing in those polls is very much real. Okay, well, we'll be watching with you. And of course, we'll speak long before then. But for now, Eric Grenier, thank you for the time. All right, thanks. Ottawa's plan to cap the number of international students for the next two years is getting some pushback. Two organizations, Colleges and Institutes Canada and Universities Canada, issuing a joint letter today to the Immigration Minister and stating in part what follows. While we acknowledge the efforts made to address challenges associated with unscrupulous actors, the implementation of the cap has the potential to bring about widespread and long-lasting consequences for both Canadian and international students. Well, joining us now is Philip Landon. He is the Interim President of Universities Canada. Uh, Philip, thank you for joining the program. Thanks very much for having me, Michael. Now listen, in the letter that you issued, you say that you're concerned about the impact of this two-year cap. Just exactly what are your concerns? Well, to the broad cap uh, situation, we're concerned that um, the uh, Canada's international reputation is going to take a hit. It, uh, it already is taking a hit in terms of some of the unclarity around how the, hat, the cap is going to be allocated. Um, and so we're, we're concerned about that, but we're mostly concerned about the immediate hit that uh, in universities and students who are applying to them are taking because there's a moratorium right now on study permits until 
the provinces understand their allocation and have a system for their allocation, which uh, will help. Which and and then and then to issue a letter of attestation uh, to show that that the student is part of an allocation before they can go ahead for the regular study permit process. This is all going to slow down the system. It's slowing down the system at a time when a lot of international students are uh, typically applying to uh, Canada's universities. Mm -hmm. At a time when they're applying. So talk to us about the economic impact this actually has on institutions then, because uh, certainly we know that universities and colleges have turned more to to, to foreign students, if you will, uh, partly to, to, to meet the, the, the economic need of a university as provinces freeze or bring down university budgets. Yeah, I mean, university, international students are very important for our universities and for our communities and actually for the future of Canada. Uh, but that being said, they also do provide a, 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 a revenue stream as well for universities. The challenge has been is that the uh, provincial funding to many universities in a variety of jurisdictions has really decreased. It's stagnated or it's decreased. Universities have been using uh, international students as a way to make up some of that uh, shortfall. And in order to ensure that we continue to have the world-class quality university education that Canada does offer for domestic students and international students alike. Mm -hmm. You know, let's go back a little bit because you, you mentioned the attestation process. And I think it's worthwhile to talk about that because, you know, uh, I just wonder how problematic is it because it seems to make sense for some because here is a process whereby it ensures there's no abuse in the system. It would uh, it would essentially require documentation to say that a foreign student is here for study and nothing else. What's wrong with that? Well, well, the system is in the hands of the provinces right now. What IRCC has said that is that the, each province will get a certain allocation and they can choose how to allocate. Uh, those letters of attestation or those spots that they have. We're not sure how each province is going to do that. Um, what we're concerned about and why we felt that it was necessary to write the letter was that this confusion and this moratorium is going to force the talented um, international students who are who have many choices as to where to study to not come to Canada. If you're a student and you see something about an international student cap and you've got to wait until there's a letter of attestation process before you can get a study permit and you're at home and you have an option to go to the UK or go to Australia or go to the US, I think you're going to go to those places. And so we're very concerned that the uncertainty around the process that exists right now is going to cause um, a, a, a drastic reduction in the talented students that were hoping to come to Canada's universities. Okay, uh, talk me through this though, because you know to hear it from the, the minister, the immigration minister, when he made the announcement uh, before the return of parliament, the, this cap, these limitations, they will not apply to masters or doctoral level students. So, and really, to hear it from the minister's mouth, those are the students that Canada actually wants to keep. But you're making an argument for, for it seems, the undergraduate students. Absolutely, I, I, and and we're very pleased that the the masters and undergrad and, and graduate students are not part of this cap, and we're and we're very pleased that current international students, those who are already here, are not part of this cap as well. But we are concerned that the numbers and the significant it's about a thirty five percent reduction, depending on how it's applied province by province, could have a significant both financial um, impact on universities and uh, a significant impact on our, on the reputation. Um, you know, Michael, one of the one of the other measures which doesn't get mentioned is that they removed the postgraduate working permit from um, the public private uh, uh, 
agreements that colleges uh, were in. We think that that was the measure that was necessary. That's where we had seen explosive growth in uh, university, uh, pardon me, in, in college and international students. That's where the, uh, the, the problems lay. We think that the, um, the government did the right thing by removing that, that, uh, that ability for those uh, institutions to have, for short-term courses to have a, uh, a postgraduate working permit. But we think that the bigger cap of, as I say, about 35% and unclear how it's going to be allocated um, is going to have some unintended consequences, which which could uh, severely affect Canada and affect Canada's universities. Okay, so so Philip, what do you say then to, to Canadians who, who are concerned that an influx of international students essentially makes it harder to find housing for anyone else, uh, that, that, that it contributes to the affordability challenges that Canadians are feeling right now. What do you say to those Canadians who, who, who see this as more than just trying to uh, get, uh, get education under control, but also to get affordability under control? Yeah, what I would say is that I think that the real challenges um, rest in with some of the unscrupulous actors in in the uh, in in the system where where numbers have gone up significantly. Those institutions have not helped their students to find uh, housing. They've they've um, accepted too many students too fast, and that has put real pressure in various areas. I think. All of Canada and all Canadians are feeling the crunch on the housing uh, crisis. I don't think capping international students is the answer, but I do think trying to address sort of more surgically the areas where we see explosive growth, as as I think they've done by removing the PGWP uh, postgraduate working permit for those those private colleges, um, is going to help in in that regard. Um, and I and and I also think that that the uh, you know using international students um, a little bit as a scapegoat for something which which the whole country is feeling right now for a variety and myriad of reasons it is 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 unfair philip landon appreciate the time today really uh, thank you for it thanks very much michael well time now for a look at what happened in politics today Immigration Minister Mark Miller has announced $363 million to address housing for refugees. He says that $100 million of that funding will go to Quebec. It's not clear, though, how much funding will go to the City of Toronto. Miller says that will be announced in the coming days. The Trudeau government is giving Ontario $121 million to combat auto theft in the province. It comes from a $390 million federal fund meant to tackle guns and gang violence. In 2022, nearly 10,000 vehicles were stolen in the Toronto area alone, representing a 300% increase since 2015. This according to the Canadian Finance and Leasing Association. Here in the York region, and in many big cities across the country, auto theft is a growing problem and one that's increasingly violent as well. Conservatives have broken a record for fundraising for a political party, reporting over $35 million in donations in 2023. That compares to about $15.6 million for the Liberals, about $6.8 million for the NDP. As for the Bloc, they raised about $1.7 million and the People's Party raised $1.5 million. The Greens have yet to file their fourth quarter numbers, but were standing at about $1.1 million for the first three. 
And finally, over 400,000 people have been approved for the federal dental care program, meaning they can start seeing a dentist or other oral health provider as early as this May. Starting tomorrow, more letters will go out with instructions on how to apply. They will go to potentially eligible seniors 72 years old and up. To qualify, you must have an adjusted family net income of less than $90,000, no access to private insurance, and have filed last year's tax returns. This is an area uh, uh, really essential for preventative health. Uh, when we think about oral health care, we think about uh, having a happy smile and what that means to our self-esteem and our ability to be in the world. Uh, but we also know that it's absolutely essential in the prevention of cardiovascular disease, dementia, uh, uh, and other uh, maladies. And that is Primetime Politics. I'm Michael Serapio. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you again tomorrow. L'Essentiel avec Astavejan is up next.